But this explanation of consciousness does not require the brain to produce something like this emergent property of complex networks. It just requires the brain to compute and do what it does in every other sensory system. And so I'm arguing that consciousness is actually a property outside the brain. And the percept, that process of forming a percept, that is the thing that we most associate with consciousness. And that's internal to the brain and all brains can do it. Just depends on their level of complexity. Get ready to have your mind blown on this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that theory was provided to you by Dr. Divya Chander, faculty chair of neuroscience at Singularity University and attending anesthesiologist at Stanford. And Divya shares today that consciousness could be external and not internal. So on today's episode, I asked Divya what it means to be conscious. Where exactly does it come from? And what you can do to strengthen your mind. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Divya Chander. Enjoy. Here we go. We are going to go live. It's telling me to take a deep breath. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't hold my breath for this uh, this live stream, but here we go. Giving it a test run here in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, here today to talk about the human Conscious is the head of neuroscience at Singularity University, Dr. Divya Chander. Doc, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Now, we're supposed to be talking about neuroscience today mm. and about the human conscious and consciousness, but we you know it was really kind of difficult to figure out this this crowdcast, this webinar, wasn't it, Doc? <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, I heard they got this ongoing running running joke at Singularity University, AI, not AV. That's absolutely correct. Maybe we could like control it with our minds or something. And that would be nice. That, that would be better. Yeah. I digress. Doc, it's really, really fun and exciting to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now. Um, maybe explain our audience really quick, a little bit of background about who you are, what drew you to the human conscious and why you like uh, putting people to sleep. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'm a little bit of an odd person. I've got this love for the brain, but I also have this love for space. Um, so one quick digression is I almost did become an astronaut and that's neither here nor there, but I am trying to link up the two. Um, my background and what got me into this is that uh, when I was doing my um, the PhD portion of my MD PhD, I was doing neuroscience. I was studying basically gain control in the retina. How do you actually fine tune the response coming in from your eyes so that your brain can perceive it and not cut it off? And, and so I did a lot of physiology and computational work at that time, but I really had always wanted to study the problem of consciousness. In fact, it was such an airy fairy topic. It was a psychological issue, a social issue but I wanted to study it in a more rigorous way. 
So when I chose my medical discipline, what after going back to med school and starting to think about residency, I chose anesthesiology because I could make people reversibly unconscious for a living. And then I could study their brains in the process. And that's kind of what brought me here. So let's expand on that a little bit. So when you put somebody to sleep and you're monitoring their brain, what are you seeing and, and what does that really look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. So first, I'm going to show you. Can I share Absolutely. my screen with yeah, you for a sec? Sure. So this is an example of what it looks like to actually record somebody when they're asleep in the operating room. And what you can see is um, here's my anesthesia machine behind me. And by the way, related to COVID, this is a ventilator behind me. <laughs> so after I intubate my patients, I put them on that ventilator just behind me. And what you see over my left shoulder is a monitor that's actually displaying brainwaves in real time. And it's connected up to this series of electrodes that I have on this patient's forehead. So I can actually monitor her brain as she moves from being awake and aware to losing conscious awareness. And then when I wash all the drugs out of her brain, I can watch her brain coming back online. Hmm. So that does something really important for me. One, it gives me the ability actually to guide her care to what her brain is asking for. Um, all these people who are so afraid of waking up under anesthesia, waking up under a surgeon's knife, if you have your brain to guide the anesthesiologist, that cannot happen. I can see on that monitor if she's asleep or awake. Hmm. So that, that's number one. So I can guide clinical care. But the second piece of it is I can download that data and I can analyze it and learn something about the neural networks underneath that support consciousness state switches. So that's another really important piece of it. And even more important to, than that is the fact that <clears throat> if we want to understand consciousness and none of us had a great definition for what it was, if those clinicians who study altered states of consciousness in their patients can compare what it looks like when a brain is conscious or less conscious, we can pull or extract some, some common features. So the kinds of things I'm talking about are neurologists who study sleep or neurologists who study coma. And even if we don't have a great definition to start with, we can all agree that, for instance, when I anesthetize you, you're unconscious. And how do I know that? Because I can cut into you with a knife and you don't respond. Um, if you're in a coma, your brain is giving off signals looking like it's hovering somewhere between anesthesia and brain death. So now the question is, what do those brains have in common? And this is what's really interesting, and it's helping us to come up with a definition for consciousness. It turns out that brains that become less conscious become functionally disconnected or broken apart. So if you could imagine, like you and I are having a conversation today, and we're paying attention to one another, and our brains are awake and alert but they're actually divided into all these different modules. And each of those modules is talking to one another and they're really, really asynchronous. So they're all doing their own thing and chattering and then something else is interpreting that somewhere down the line. So there's all these computations going on. When you even fall asleep, your brain begins to break apart a little bit. And as you get anesthetized, it breaks apart even more. So your brain doesn't go electrically silent but it does become more synchronous and it stops talking to, to other modules. And that, that is a really good way of thinking about what it means to be conscious. Your brain is functionally connected when you're conscious. And we're gonna, we can bring this into machines later, by the way. <laughs> um, 
The second piece of it is a brain that is less conscious calculates less information. It's um, if you want to think about it as an input output device, it can't it can't do the same calculations when it's less conscious. And the third thing that we have just characterized in a recent paper we published is that a brain that is less conscious is actually less complex. It, it decreases in complexity. And um, for the, those people in your audience who know what a chaotic attractor looks like, we can actually draw attractor shapes for your brain. And as it's awake, it's this sphere. And it means it has all this multi-potentiality. And as your consciousness begins to decline and wane, the sphere contracts and contracts and it turns into a cigar and then it turns into this tiny point. It looks almost like a singularity. Hmm. So, and then it reverses. Well, I guess the goal today was to blow the mind of the audience, Divya. And mm-hmm. I'm interested right now because when I'm trying to study this and I was you know, looking at the textbook you know, for dummies on the human consciousness, um, the one question that came to my mind is, where exactly does this thing come from? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. It's the million dollar question, Kevin. Of course, you're asking it. Um, Okay, so I am going to go to another analogy, but I'm going to start with a controversial statement. So if you talk to several neuroscientists, um, or generally scientists who tend to be more reductionistic, they would say to you, okay, this is all you've got. You've got some, you've got some nerve cells and they're assembled in these collections of networks. And ultimately those networks are all you have. So consciousness by definition must arise from those networks, Hmm. but they never tell you how ever, because we don't know. We don't know how to translate all the things we are learning about the brain computationally into something that generates consciousness. So that's a difficult problem. Um, so let's go in the other direction. And now we're going to use the analogy. So uh, I like to use the visual system. And the visual system is a wonderful analogy. It's the thing I studied when I was in graduate school. But people seem to understand the fact that when we look out into the universe, um, we're pulling in essentially a rainbow, right? That's what our eyes respond to. That's what our photoreceptors bind to. So it's basically Roy G. Biv. We respond to things in the electromagnetic spectrum between red and violet. The thing is, we know our electromagnetic spectrum is huge. Our eyes don't bind X-rays or gamma rays. We don't even see in the UV. Um, But yet we form this perception based on this limited data that comes in. And by the way, it's not even just exactly as it came in. Then we start performing calculations on it. This is what my PhD was about. We start tossing data out. We start filtering it. And then we send it up to this sort of central place that puts together the perception. And we have this visual percept, this thing we call visual consciousness, but it has nothing to do with the real world. Hmm. It's a complete hallucination. But it's such a successful hallucination. It's as if our brains evolved to throw out the data that was not important for its survival, right? So let's, and by the way, this happens in all of our sensory systems. Your auditory system does it. Your, even your system of taste and smell, everything does this. Your system of touch. Let's take this to a different place. Imagine if you wanted to form a conscious percept of the entire universe 
your brain would be confronted with this problem of having to bind all the information in the universe. Your eye can't do it. Your brain certainly can't. It would just completely burn out metabolically. So I almost look at consciousness as like conscious with a big C as the total amount of information available in the universe. Consciousness with a little C is that whole process of binding, filtering, computing information and creating this percept from it. Mm. And that's for some reason the thing we most identify with. But this explanation of consciousness does not require the brain to produce something like this emergent property of complex networks. It just requires the brain to compute and do what it does in every other sensory system. And so I'm arguing that consciousness is actually a property outside the brain. And the percept, that process of forming a percept, that is the thing that we most associate with consciousness. And that's internal to the brain. And all brains can do it. Just depends on their level of complexity. Okay. So the brain does not produce a conscious. The brain registers one. So for yes, and a dumbed down version, by the way. Dumbs down version. So (laughs) and you you mentioned survival. So we know adaptations come from survival or a community of survival. And mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm aware, I'm aware that I am interviewing Dr. Divya Chander. I'm aware this is a notebook. I'm aware this is a pen that I'm holding. And if someone tries to come in and steal my my camera, I am going to have to defend myself and my brain has to register that. Now with with the, the light example, I can also see colors now. My brain can register that. But through that process, my brain might be blocking out extra stimuli that are coming in because I'm just a primate that's only been around for, you know, 20 plus years. So I guess the question that I'm thinking of is, is if it doesn't produce a consciousness and it just registers it, what makes us different from another animal that can produce differently? And is our consciousness evolving or, or yeah, I guess that's a question. Is our consciousness evolving? So you're hitting on a lot of really important things all at once. So let's start again with the the way I've defined consciousness. So consciousness with a big C, total amount of information available in the universe. Consciousness with a small C, the filtered version that your brain produces. Now you ask me a really important question. Well, we're just primates, right? So we produce a certain kind of visual perception, a kind of visual consciousness. What about other animals and how does that relate to all of our ability to adapt? So can I screen share it again? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So let's try this. And for people listening to this on audio, I'll just continue to talk while this is coming up. Um, you're going to be able to find this interview on YouTube at our channel at Real Leaders Magazine. Uh, and Divya is pulling up a PowerPoint that she's presented on a few times. Okay. So take a look at this image. This is a human um, and you can see that they're sampling just that very limited portion of the rainbow in the total electromagnetic spectrum. But if we were to um, take a look at this little guy who is a different creature, it's a mantis shrimp, it lives on the coral reef and it has completely different survival needs, right? So this is exactly what you're talking about. Primate needs, okay, let's take a shrimp in this case. Mm. It turns out that this shrimp can pull in more of the electromagnetic spectrum than the human eye okay we wouldn't necessarily say that the shrimp is more conscious than we are right 
it is simply processing a different portion of the spectrum because that's what it needs for survival. There are different colors on the reef and that's what it needs. Mm. So getting back to this, we wouldn't say that this, that the human is producing the electromagnetic spectrum. We would say that it's processing and interpreting that. It's something into something that's kind of useful for us. Uh, so that brings in a whole, this is a really interesting question, this kind of evolutionary question. So God, if I had a post-it note, I would draw for your viewers, but here, I'm going to hold up my phone. Okay. Got it. So my phone is going to represent a graph. Okay. And there are two axes, this axis right here, the Y axis for the, for the listeners, um, this is going to measure one dimension of consciousness. And on this axis, the X axis, we're going to measure another one. So it turns out you can break consciousness into at least two dimensions and maybe more. But the dimension here on this x-axis is your level of consciousness. So this is the thing where I can take you from being awake to a little bit drowsy, to super sleepy, to deep sleep, to anesthesia, to coma, to brain death. Okay, so brain death is way down here. But there's another piece of this. That's this y-axis. Think of that as the content of consciousness. It's what you hold in your consciousness. Okay. How complex are those calculations you can make? So now if we were to look at this graph, being awake is way up here. You not only have a high level of consciousness, you have high content. And as you begin to get drowsy, you have a little less of both. And as you become like going to deep sleep, you have much less of both. Here's anesthesia down here, coma, being brain dead is way down at the origin. There's nothing there. But there are deviations, right? Like what happens when you dream? Mm. High content, very low level. So you're actually somewhere off here. You're off that straight line that I had drawn for you. Uh, when you People who are in a vegetative state or a minimally conscious state also go off the line. They have normal sleep-wake cycles, but the content that they hold in their awareness is very, very low. Mm. So it's an interesting way to conceptualize consciousness Let's bring animals into it now. Remember I told you they're, they're optimized also for their environment and they're pulling in information from that same universe that we are. So if you were to say that humans are up here in terms of the, or primates in general, in terms of the complexity of their network, let's look at animals down here, right? So they're moving up and down this, this scale, but animals all have sleep-wake cycles, hmm. right? There are... This, this is crazy, but um, some of the genes that change how humans respond, respond to anesthetics are found in fruit flies. We can anesthetize a fruit fly, and it has homologous genes to respond to anesthesia the way we do. The gene that makes us narcoleptic, the knockout, is the same one in fruit flies that makes them act like they're narcoleptic. Hmm. And the phenotype, the way that expresses itself in the world is that when you take a narcoleptic person, like the kind of person who just suddenly falls asleep, there's something wrong with their arousal system. And so we, they anesthetize just like everybody else. They go down the same way. But when you wash the anesthetic out of their brain, they often don't come back. And you have to give them drugs to make their network stitch back together mm. so that they can reemerge. So let's, let's stick on animals here really quick mm. you know if you, if you talk to uh, i don't know if he's faculty but i met him at singularity university it was uh, mr stamets paul and he was telling me that we evolved and we are ancestors of fungi now you think about that and you go okay do do fungi have conscious 
consciousness? Are they absorbing stimuli and coming up with their own awareness to survive again? And so how far back we keep going back and back and back and back until we find the first cell that decided to divide and was able to sustain that reproduction. And that's essentially what we are doing as beings is we are reproducing and reproducing and reproducing. Now, when along that timeline was a consciousness able to grasp that it's aware of the outside big C that you're saying? You're asking another very it's a deep four, question. four billion year question, right? No, there. no, it's a it's a it's a deep question. So I'm going to slightly recast pieces of it, but it's an excellent question. Okay. So by the way, you're talking about Paul Stamets. Um, we should talk about what psychedelics do to human consciousness. We should. But, let's go into that later. <laughs> but that's a but that's another um, that's another answer. So okay, let's do the evolutionary thing. You started from single cell organisms and you moved us all the way to these really complex networks, neural networks that you find in us and where eukaryotic organisms. I would argue that as soon as that individual cell begins to sense other cells in its vicinity and begins to react along with them, they have formed a loose network and their ability to bind, process stimuli, information, whatever you want to call it has already changed. And a single cell may not express something that sounds like consciousness, but you may be able to bind them into a network that does, right? It's not the way we normally think of and understand consciousness, but if you think of the functional connectivity thing and the idea that networks that are conscious can calculate more information and they're more complex, it satisfies all three. Right. So there's all kinds of interesting things. Look, we're humans and our brains have a lot of limitations. And one thing is that we seem to want to conceptualize consciousness as being something that we understand both on on our human scale, but also in space and time. I mean, what if what if like trees that were connected by root systems were conscious, but operating on a much, much slower timescale, a timescale that was almost impossible for us to proceed because our brains aren't wired that way. Um, and in fact, I'd argue you gave this definition of you try to throw life in there, right? Re- reproduction. Stars reproduce in a galactic nursery, right? They eat, they metabolize, they do all of those things. They produce new elements, right? It's a form of metabolism. They take in other, I mean, they have nuclear reactions happening at their core. I would argue to you that by this definition, on some level, a stellar nursery <laughs> would also be conscious. And it could even, you could extrapolate them because when people say to me, can machines ever become conscious? If their networks became sufficiently complex, the content could increase. Um, and if they could be functionally connected in such a way and begin to express cycles that would change levels of consciousness along a continuum, you could argue that they could become conscious as well. Hmm. And, and it opens up even more interesting things. Um, I talk often about how reading and writing to the brain has opened up a world of building brain machine interfaces. What if then the process, we, we've already connected brains of people who are, for instance, paralyzed to the internet. What happens if we really merge human brains and computing power in that way? 
um, I would argue that you would create consciousness of a different scale and perhaps we would have to toggle that y-axis the content really differently and maybe increase bump it up beyond what the human brain alone can accomplish so i want to just paint this picture for our audience right now we talked about the first cell we talked about stars we're, we're essentially a stardust right i mean we, we all came from this one mm-hmm. atom that expanded and we're all part of this one energy right i mean theoretically and now we, we go from the first cell to multicellular organisms to trees and a tree system. And they might just be accepting that stimuli at such a slower rate. And the, even the mycelium that, that they feed off of could all be part of this connected network that are, that are uh, accepting the stimuli and, and creating a, awareness to survive. Now... I, if we want to go from there to a primate, obviously the human might not be the end form. I don't think it will be. We talk about climate change all the time. We will probably kill all of ourselves. I'm just saying that. And then something, the earth will still be there for another billions and billions of years until the, the sun you know, wipes it out. Um, but it, we can continue to evolve. Now, that last state might be AI, what you mentioned. However, here's something I was listening to the other day, Debbie, I think you'll actually like is Sir Roger Penrose. Have mm-hmm. you heard of him? So he comes on and he has his own theory about things. And the example he gave is that we can't trust like physics and like just by accepting science is it's it's its own irrational thing of you can you can you can't draw you might not be able to draw the right conclusion from something that's based off of science is basically the premise of it. And correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the example he gives is this. He said, you know, I didn't like this example that someone gave. This is Minsky and Edward Fred, I believe. He said, you have two computers in a room and they're talking to each other. And by the time you get to that room, they have already had enough conversations to encompass the entire human race at that time. Therefore, humans and computers or computers will develop a consciousness. What he says to that, though, is that consciousness is much, much, much different than computation. And you cannot compute a consciousness because your theory of computation will basically reject everything about consciousness. If that makes any sense whatsoever. And this is a rundown version of that. Maybe elaborate on why you believe AI can develop a consciousness or why you don't think it will. Um, Let me go back to something he said. Um, This idea of separating consciousness from computation or just simple input-output functions is is probably the crux, the most important crux of this entire debate in some sense. I I talked to Roger Penrose about a year and a half ago specifically and tried to nail him down on this. And here's the problem. Um, He Still, I said, if that's true, and we're going to divide the two up and say that they're different, what is consciousness? What's your definition? And he couldn't give me that. Mm. So does that mean his intuition is wrong? No, it doesn't. It just means that even he is having trouble defining this, this je ne sais quoi, this thing that is independent of the underlying computations that go on. And that's why I... My experience and the intuitions I've developed as a neuroscientist, I started my life as a sensory neuroscientist, is simply that this is just a vessel for processing information and forming 
perceptions and these perceptions we conflate with being consciousness. We do it all the time. And if we think about consciousness as more of a property of the universe than a property of any one individual brain, then one, it allows all organisms to sort of tap into this. It's This is more Jungian in some sense than it is anything else, right? This idea of a collective unconscious that we all share. Well, if there is a larger amount of information, in fact, we, there is a physicist who estimated this. He said there are about 10 to the 90th bits of information in the universe. And he did that by estimating that the universe was this, by, by creating a black hole that was the size of the universe with its event horizon and looking at how much information would be pre present in a black hole with that kind of circumference. And 10 to the 90th is an enormous quantity. Um, the total number of grains of sand on Earth is only 10 to the 18th, and stars in the universe only 10 to the 21. Imagine exponentially increasing that to 10 to the 90th. Mm -hmm. Th that number, you, you expand, can't even right? fathom it. There is no creature there is no star. There is nothing that can perceive a stimulus that large. And that's why I actually believe that the thing that we are confusing with being this very special property is simply the way each individual nervous system filters and makes sense of the universe. It's not just the input-output functions. It's the total complexity. It, it's how they talk to one another. And it's the, it's the meaning they've extracted or produced from the total information available. And it's a very different way of conceptualizing consciousness than either Marvin Minsky or than Roger Penrose. It's its its, its own thing, but it's weirdly rooted in solid neuroscience because every one of your sensory systems does this. I mean, if I were if I were to say to you, um, you know, you can see, does your visual system produce the visual world? You'd be like, no, it perceives it. It perceives it. It binds information from that that spectrum, the rainbow, and then it perceives, it can reconstruct something. So if you're okay with saying your visual system does that, why is it that your brain, when it comes to just globally thinking about consciousness, would do anything differently? Mm. So I, I think that we've gotten our definitions all wrong. I think that by considering consciousness as being this, this weird thing that's so indescribable, I think we've gotten it wrong. But by tying consciousness to what the brain already knows how to do, you open up different possibilities. So let's go back to Paul Stamets, right? Magic mushrooms. Uh, he and others who talk about psychedelics would tell you that they seem to fundamentally change the nature of consciousness. What does he mean by that? Well, psychedelics do something very interesting to your brain. So I've actually recorded brains on ketamine because I use them as an anesthesiologist. Hmm. Um, but to some extent, and they work differently in how they do this, but to some extent, all of them break apart neural networks the way they're normally wired. And for the period of time that you're, that you're under the power of that psychedelic, you have almost like a new set of neural networks with a new set of connections. It becomes a completely different filter. And <clears throat> that may explain why when you put an input into that system, you may either hallucinate a pink elephant or feel completely connected to the universe. Hmm. Um, and in cases where the memory is retained, there are often these transformational experiences. It's also why psychedelics like LSD, ketamine, um, you know, ecstasy, drugs like this, 
are really good for things like treating people with PTSD or for marriage counseling. If you think about all of these uh, PTSD, for instance, it's a habit, right? The habit that was laid down is you got exposed to something very traumatic and and let's say you are a soldier, and now you every time you hear a loud sound, you associate it with an explosion, the potential to lose your life. That's a habit that was formed, and it went below your cortex, which does all the processing, because it's too expensive to keep thinking all the time. What psychedelics do is enable all those connections that were laid down so strongly to temporarily break apart. Hmm. Now you have a plastic system, and you can now retrain that network to respond differently to a stimulus coming in. Mm. It's why they are so effective. I mean, how long does it take you to break a habit and form a new one? It, they say like at least 30 days, right? So that's because it's so metabolically expensive to break the network. Mm. You can do it through things like meditation. It just takes so much extra work, right? It, it takes a lot of discipline. Psychedelics are a shortcut. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's stay on that topic then. So what you're saying is if I ingest psilocybin, these chemicals are it's basically it's going to break apart all these synapses that I have created, not all of them, but some of them that I've created so I can intake more stimuli and, and recreate and reform my synapses in this neural network to change my habits to, you know, just it, it just naturally will happen because this is this is what's going on in, in my conscious right now. Now, the question I have is this. What is the difference right now because uh, between your subconscious and your conscious? Because right now we're having an interview. I'm laser focused on what you're saying because this is all fairly and relatively new to me. But right now there are things that are going on downstairs. There are things that are going on outside that I'm not paying attention to. But my brain might be registering still. What is the difference between subconscious and how does it affect my conscious? Okay. So... I'm going to give you a very mundane answer for the subconscious, but I want to get really granular about the very first thing you said. You talked about synapses. I didn't use that word quite yet, or maybe I did, but the synapses are the actual connections, right? Between the neurons. And you, you don't so much, when I say you kind of distort or break the network, what I mean is you change the weights temporarily, right? Mm. So it's not like the synapse goes away. It's not like the, the ability to talk goes away, but it's not, firing in the same way or when it does the response is different and um in fact it's how we form memories in the first place have you ever heard that adage it says um neurons that fire together wire together it's this thing that dio had he was a canadian neuroscientist said and it had to do with the fact that if you had a third neuron receiving information and there are two neurons talking to it if this neuron and this neuron were were firing out of synchrony nothing would happen in that third neuron. If they start firing together at the exact same time, it would strengthen the inputs on that third cell and it would suddenly form an association between the two. And each of those neurons might be representing a whole visual stream of information. And in this case, an auditory stream of information. Now imagine that those two connections coming in represented the soldier's association with, that caused PTSD. You're temporarily weakening or breaking or changing that now you can go in and and reorient it, rewire it, give it a different valence, and and it has new meaning. Now, as far as the subconscious conscious question, you're absolutely right. Um, your brain is doing all kinds of subprocessing. In fact, your subconscious brain is 
also just keeping you alive. It's monitoring your heartbeat. It's monitoring your breath. It's doing all these kinds of things uh, to, to keep you functioning. So I would almost divide that into cortical and subcortical, right? The cortical part doing a lot of the processing that we associate with what we hold in our awareness. And then what's underneath sort of maintaining, maintaining basically your body's ability to live. That sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system we talk about, that's part of that subcortical network. Your ability to take in circadian cues from light and re-entrain your brain, that's your subcortical network. Uh, some of your habits fall there, your ability to regulate temperature. Now, <clears throat> there's also a lot of processing that probably goes on underneath there and some of the habits. So if there's an input that comes in and you don't think about it and you just make an output response, a knee-jerk response, that's also subcortical or things that are getting implanted subcortically. So there are, there are both more primitive and in fact, more evolved parts of your brain that are involved in that exchange to build your subconscious. And technically we can kind of go into that place by taking the network that thinks and having it almost introspect on the network that doesn't. Hmm. So I'm curious, this has been thrown around. I'm sorry, I don't know this. What percentage of our brain can we actually access? And is there a way to, or do you see us evolving um, to access more of it? So I get asked this question a lot. Oh, I heard we lose 10% of our brain. Can we train it? It's total bullshit. You use all of your brain. All of it. Okay. You always have used all of it. The difference is that... As I was, I've used this term a lot, and let me explain what I mean by this. I said it's very metabolically expensive, say, to break a habit or to form new networks. It is metabolically expensive in general to use your brain. Your brain weighs only about three pounds. Think about what your total body weight is. Yet it uses twenty to twenty-five percent of your cardiac output. In other words, at least one fifth of the blood in your body is constantly going to your brain, bringing oxygen, bringing glucose, and and the reason that happens is it. People have actually, they've done energetic analysis of neurons, and it turns out every time your neuron fires that, one of those spikes or action potentials, it, it costs it costs your body so much in energy. And if you had to think that hard about everything you did, your brain would just burn up. Mm. This is the, the fact that you use your entire brain. In fact, your brain is highly conserved. You have nothing there to spare, Right but you don't use every single network the exact same way at the exact same time. There is some parallel processing, but there's some hierarchical processing. You use exactly what you need to survive and get the right response. And when you engage more networks, cause you're thinking hard, you are using a lot more energy. Okay. So what are some, uh, well, maybe let's talk about some of the downsides of having to think a lot. Like you and me and anyone else listening to this right now probably has some anxiety. It's probably normal to have anxiety. It's probably normal to think a lot. What is happening when you get anxiety? What is happening when you take something like a benzo uh, to to uh, you know block that anxiety out? Okay, so I'm, the first disclaimer I'm going to give you is I am not a psychiatrist, nor am I a neuroscientist who specifically studies these circuits. Okay, sorry about that. No, no, no. It's okay. But I, 
the last thing I want to do is, you know, let your audience think I'm an expert on something that I'm, I'm not, but certainly I can still describe this at a, at a general level. So there are anxiety networks in your brain. Uh, they often engage the part of your brain that we call the limbic system, the thing that tends to become a little bit more fear oriented in some cases. Um, People, um, their response to things is to become OCD. So they develop repetitive actions in order to handle things. All of these, this sort of spectrum of responses to the world that might seem semi-maladaptive. I mean, anxiety is actually quite adaptive, right? Because your ability to, to mount an anxious response, usually, at least on our ancestors, would probably save their lives, right? Sure. When these circuits become laid down in such a way that everything triggers that response, it becomes maladaptive. And the way benzodiazepines, benzos, as you mentioned, and these are drugs like Valium or Ativan or Xanax, the way these drugs work to break anxiety is uh, they bind to the exact same receptor that alcohol binds to in your brain, something called the GABA receptor. And they generally tend to increase the amount of inhibition in your brain. And so they dampen the response of those networks a bit. But this is why they also have all kinds of other side effects. Uh, if somebody is seizing, we give them a benzo because the brain is hyperactive and we want to calm the neurons down. Mm, okay. um, so we'll give them a benzo. If somebody is withdrawing from alcohol, we'll also give them a benzo so that they, they don't withdraw too quickly or too precipitously because it can be very, very dangerous. Um, so we use benzos for all kinds of things and the different benzos work slightly differently because they, they bind to GABA receptors, but in different networks, slightly different networks. So the one that we give all the time for surgery right before a patient goes back with us into the operating room is an anesthesiologist. It's called midazolam or Versed, same drug. It immediately gets rid of anxiety, but it also causes you not to form memories for the next 20 minutes. So it prevents anterograde memory. And the other ones don't do that. And it also wears off really quickly. So the idea is to block bad memories you might have in those first minutes you're rolling back to the OR. Well, Divya, I know you're short on time. So I want to keep this simple and, and just I got two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. We'll wrap it up. Healthy habits for mm -hmm. our listeners out there. I know you said it takes a lot of, it's a lot of metabolic process, a lot of metabolic power that you're exhausting. Uh, and it's, you got to form habits in 30 days. But for me as an interviewer beforehand in the interviews, you know, you do have some of that, not anxiety, but just some of those butterflies that you get. And you want to make sure that you can recall some of the things that you wanted to talk about. I don't have any predetermined questions because I, I don't operate like that. I need to just listen to the person do my research and hopefully something positive and, and smart will come out of my mouth. Most of the time that doesn't happen. But what can someone do to train the brain to have better recall? And is it like the, the inputs into the body, whether it's food or diet or exercise, what are some healthy things that someone can do? Yeah, that's a nice way to end, right? So <clears throat> a couple of things. One is um, how do you improve all of these things? And one is how do you preserve them? Right. So I, I talk often about um, longevity. And when I get to longevity in the brain, I can actually tell you some real things that help. Uh, so you're, you're right. First of all, the food you put in is everything. But the food you put in also as it relates to things like obesity really, really matters. Um, 
here are the things that in prospective clinical trials have been shown to decrease the onset of dementia, Alzheimer's, all these kinds of things. Um, one is keeping your blood pressure low. So it turns out that something as simple, because there's so many people with high blood pressure, even the people dying of COVID-19 tend to have high blood pressure. This is possibly because it sets up this sort of pro-inflammatory cascade in your body that leads to other things like diabetes. Um, and it leads to cognitive loss and decline as well. Hmm. So keep your blood pressure down. The second thing, believe it or not, that has been shown to be effective is meditation and mindfulness. Um, so people who practice these things, um, whether or not they do it with pranayama, deep breathing, these kinds of things have been shown to decrease cognitive decline over the long term. Another thing is sleep. So sleeping for eight hours seems to be incredibly important. Uh, sleep has housekeeping functions in your brain. If you look at the levels of, uh, if you do a subtractive analysis, which basically in broad terms means take a wake brain, take a sleeping brain and look at what's different. Okay. When you look at what's different between a sleeping and an awake brain at the protein level, you find that when awake brains have a lot more of the proteins that help you make those synapses and form memories, the sleeping brain has the proteins that prune all those synapses and basically takes all the clutter away. Huh. The second thing that seems to happen when you sleep is that there's this new highway that opens up in your brain. We've only recently discovered this in the last five to six years. In our body, we have a lymphatic system that drains a lot of toxins and waste, but the brain doesn't have a lymphatic system, and, but it does have something that bathes the brain. It's called the cerebrospinal fluid. And so when you fall asleep, it turns out the blood vessels actually get a little smaller in your brain and the channels that have that CSF get huge. And you can actually image them in mice and living mice in real time. You can see this happening. Um, and so it actually drains tons and tons of waste, including the plaques that are the proteins that cause plaques in Alzheimer's. So essentially, if you don't sleep, you're going to keep building plaque up in your brain and develop different kinds of dementias. Um, and during sleep too, we find that this process also seems to be correlated with a kind of electrical oscillation in the brain that also enables restoration. By the way, during sleep, a different oscillation helps you learn and remember things. So let's say you took a piano lesson or a golf lesson or so you're just trying to learn something in your motor memory and you don't sleep well you're unlikely to consolidate what you learned in such a way that you form a permanent memory. So pulling an all-nighter, which is what I used to do in college, is a really bad thing for retaining memory. Um, keeping a gratitude journal turns out to be really important uh, for staving off dementia. Uh, and generally, this idea of use it or you lose it, it seems to have some real relevance, whether you're talking about building muscle or maintaining neuronal tissue. And then the final thing is exercise. We're not 100% sure why. Um, you even give birth to new brain cells, but you also preserve the ones that you have. And so we don't know if it's because exercise increases blood flow to the brain and therefore must be increasing oxygen and glucose, or if there's something else happening, some sort of epigenetic changes or because it decreases stress and therefore decreases inflammation. And there are even now a few studies that show that, that basically resistance or weight training, not just aerobic training, seems to protect your brain. And that doesn't increase the oxygen or the blood delivery to the brain. So we don't 100% know why this is true, but we know that exercise is really important for preserving brain function.
That is incredible. Doc, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, the last question I usually ask all my guests on the show is, what is your definition of a real leader? Today, Doc, I want to ask you this question. What is your definition of consciousness? Oh, in, in a nutshell, huh? Sir Roger Penrose didn't have an answer, did he? No, no, he, he didn't. I would say that um, and it's, it's not a complete definition, but, but consciousness is the way a brain makes sense of the total of available information in the universe. Repeat that one more time for me. Consciousness is a way that a brain makes sense of the total information available to it in the universe. Love it. Doc, thanks for blowing my mind today or, or giving me some stimuli to make my mind think that I was blown today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for every, all your work that you're doing right now, especially with COVID-19. I know how busy you are, folks. We were trying to get Doc on the show for a long time and COVID-19 situations and her busy schedule uh, did not let that happen. So I'm glad you were able to come on the show today. Glad we were able to get you on Zoom. I'm so happy the audio came out clear. And you had a microphone. So on behalf of the Realtors audience, just want to thank you for coming on the show. For Dr. Divya Chander, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be conscious, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Doc. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Good, healthy, conscious people. What about a better conscious way of doing business? Another avenue that we could have explored today on this podcast, but that one's up to you to figure out on your own. And if you want to improve the consciousness, the, you want better external stimuli coming in to reform the way you think about business, go online to realjazzsellers.com slash subscribe and pick up our latest edition and get 25% off using coupon code podcast25 at checkout, folks. That's podcast25. You're going to read that magazine. You are going to become a conscious leader and take your business to the next level. For all the visual learners, I don't know if you heard in the beginning, but we recorded this live through Crowdcast, our new podcast platform. So what I want you to do is if you want to get notified of these upcoming episodes, just go to realleaders.com slash newsletter, enter in your email, and we will let you know when these are going to go live, where you can ask questions and even come on stage. But if you missed the interview and you want to just watch it for yourself, go online to our new YouTube channel. It's at Realtors Magazine to see Divya Chander and all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.